I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. This is the Friday talk of Parinirvana Sashin, February 16th, 2024. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. So in this talk, I'd like to open up this fourth of the five invitations from Frank Ostaseski and the Zen Hospice Project, his vast experience of helping many people through the process of death and their many loved ones, the process of grief. Find a place of rest in the middle of things. I'd also like to point to our relationship to endings and let this be a continued practice. What do we even mean by endings? What is our experience of them? And I'd like to bring in a koan that can be helpful to a life that is seemingly bifurcated into categories of rest and activity. Or maybe it seems like unending activity and very little rest. So finding a place of rest in the middle of things. Some of you thought you were coming here for that. I'll go to a monastery. There I will really be able to rest. We sign up to spend most of the day sitting in silence. And you would think that that's where all the activity would stop. But the activity follows us in. We pack our insecurities. Everything we thought we had buried and pushed down and tucked away comes roaring back at us in the silence of the zendo. All of our habits, all of our liking and disliking, all of our judging, it's all right here. There's no escape. At least not to a particular place. What we do have here, though, is at least the Dharma teachings. We have exposure to the medicine of the Dharma, to the practice, and our commitment to applying it with our own experience. And we're surrounded by other people who are also doing the same so that we can remind each other and support each other. We train here in what seem like small things. Coming back to the body, returning to this breath, this moment over and over. 
And by coming back and by returning, we mean focusing awareness on. <coughs> so that when we encounter the quote-unquote big things, we have created this habit of presence. Though I like that phrase that's in one of our chants, affirming faith in mind, the largest is the smallest too. There's no need to distinguish between these large things or small things that we practice with. We do inquire into how we might live in such a way that it's not just our flimsy identity that's interacting with life. Our brittle idea about who we think we are, our desperate attempts to control who others think we are. The place of rest is not in a monastery or on a beach in a hammock, although that does sound really pleasant right now on a February day in Oregon. A place of rest is not even when we have check marks next to every item on our to-do list. Has that ever happened to anyone? That you got it all done? We can never get it all done. Perhaps some of you know that all too well. That after we die, there's a whole to-do list of what seems like thousands of things that other people will have to do for you, even if you've made every preparation that you can. Because you can't take your own death certificate to the bank or to the Social Security Administration. Someone's going to have to do that for you. The to-do list never ends. So we all need each other. We need help from each other. That's some of what I'd like to share about here. This is a book called Preparing to Die by Andrew Holacek. He writes from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, which has a lot to say about dying, death, and especially what happens after death. <laughs> the author calls death a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. <laughs> so he uses the word bardo in the, in the piece I want to share, so I want to first describe what that is, and I'll use his definition. He says, Death is one of the most precious experiences in life. It is literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The karma that brought us into this life is exhausted, leaving a temporarily clean slate, and the karma that will propel us into our next life has not yet crystallized. This leaves us in a unique no-man's land, a netherworld the Tibetans call bardo, where all kinds of miraculous possibilities can materialize. At this special time, with the help of skillful friends, we can make rapid spiritual progress and directly influence where we will take rebirth. 
we can even attain enlightenment. So I don't know very much about that. And um, I think there's probably really great retreats where you could learn a lot more about that, but this isn't that one. What I want to share with you is really some of the practical preparations he offers in getting ready to die and that we really do need help. We need help at every turn and we need help letting go. He says, in many ways, the entire spiritual path is about letting go. It's death in slow motion. So if we travel our path genuinely, death is but a grateful exit from a path well-traveled. We can choose to let go now and die before we die, easing our transition. Or we can wait and be forced to let go during death, which often results in a bumpy ride. Letting go is initially unfamiliar to us, which is why it hurts. But meditation is about becoming familiar with letting go and therefore eases all the transitions in life and death. Even though you may have practiced well, don't turn your death into a performance and don't compare. Feeling that your death has to measure up to someone else's is the surest way to have a rugged death. Die like yourself. Be genuine, simple, and ordinary, like death itself. If we don't interfere, dying is easy. It's the one thing in life we don't have to do. So preparing for our death is beneficial, not just in that moment, but every day. Who knew that letting go of our competitiveness, our comparing, our judging mind, would be a way to prepare for our own death? I have certainly sat in this very room and made meditation a competition. What a ridiculous thing to do. And yet, here's this very human thing that happens. We pack our insecurities. We've brought them all here and we can lay them all out, give them some light, give them some air, see what we want to let go. Our habits become quite visible in this container. You can also notice how endings can become quite visible in this container, or at least look for them. And how we have no control over them. This afternoon's lunch that seemed so real is now gone. 
we might even in our mind hear the echo of the last word in the chanting service, but it's gone too, finished. Nothing can stop that from happening. So while we always have a choice, we can choose to resist this reality, to clench around it, to disagree with it and fight it. Or we can choose to find rest in the continuous flow. So I want to share this really lovely story about finding a place of rest in the middle of things from the Five Invitations book. Someone that uh, Frank Ostaseski worked with. Adele was a tenacious, no-nonsense, 86-year-old Russian Jewish lady. I had the honor of being with her at Zen Hospice the night she died. She sat on the edge of the bed, breathing with great difficulty. Her every in and out breath was a struggle. As I sat on the couch in the corner, a kind and well-meaning nurse's aide sat behind Adele and tried to reassure her, saying, you don't have to be frightened. I'm right here with you. Adele snapped, believe me, honey, if this was happening to you, you'd be frightened. The attendant began stroking Adele's back. You're a little cold. Would you like a blanket? She asked. Adele shot back. Of course I'm cold. I'm almost dead. <laughs> I stayed in the corner, laughing to myself at her raw honesty. Two things became clear to me. One, Adele wanted straight talk and authentic relationship. She didn't want to process her dying or talk about moving into the light. She had no interest in sentimental ideas. Second, despite having been, having been, having been given all of the appropriate interventions, Adele was still struggling. There is a labor to dying as there is a labor to giving birth. I pulled up a chair close to Adele and our eyes locked. I asked, Adele, would you like to struggle a bit less? Yes, she nodded. I noticed that at the end of your exhale, there's a little pause. Can you put your attention there on that pause for a little while, I suggested. Now Adele didn't care beans about Buddhism and had never meditated in her life but she was highly motivated in the moment to be free of suffering. So she agreed to try. I'll breathe with you, I said. After a while, Adele was able to place her attention on that small gap between exhale and inhale. As she did, the fear gradually drained from her face. We continued to breathe together for some time Eventually, Adele put her head back on the pillow. A short while later, she died quite peacefully. We often think of rest as something that will come to us when everything else in our lives is complete. At the end of the day, when we take a bath 
once we go on a holiday or get through all of our to-do lists. We imagine that we can only find rest by changing our circumstances. The fourth invitation teaches us that, like Adele, we can find a place of rest within us without having to alter the conditions of our lives. After all, the conditions of Adele's life remained the same. Her breathing didn't change. She was still dying. Nevertheless, she found a place of rest. This place of rest is always available to us. We need only turn toward it. It is experienced when we bring our full attention without distraction to this moment, to this activity with sincere practice. After some time, we can come to know this spaciousness as a regular part of our lives. It manifests as an aspect of us that is never sick, is not born, and does not die. And yet it seems everywhere we look, Endings are everywhere. Watch how this breath arises, exists, and disappears. The sound of the bird arising, existing, disappearing. What is the source of all this? Where does it go? We read books, we watch movies, and they have to end. Sometimes they even say on the last page or in the last frame, the end. But that's just where the story ends. Actually, what happens is the lights come on and we file out of the theater and we get in the car and we join the road with all the other cars. Maybe we talk to our companion and say, oh, maybe there'll be a sequel to that movie. Or we close the book, we look around and it's time to let the dog out. Reality just keeps going. Even after the director would yell cut even at the end of what we think is someone's story, it keeps going. I want to share another story from the five invitations about this. And also about creating a place of rest in the middle of things. Frank says, I know a brave man named Julio. Julio is a nursing assistant in a major metropolitan hospital whose job it is to clean up the emergency room. After the pandemonium of a code during which the medical team has tried and failed to resuscitate a trauma patient in cardiac arrest with shock paddles and chest compressions, the adrenaline stops pumping and the team walks away. This is when Julio enters the room. There he finds the patient lying motionless on the stretcher, dressed in nothing but a hospital gown. An intubation tube awkwardly protrudes from the body's mouth. 
the floor is speckled with puddles of blood and the gauze pads thrown aside during the procedure. The red crash cart drawers dangle open like a mechanic's neglected toolbox in an auto shop. The room still hums with residual activity. The walls seem to hold the lingering voices of the emergency room team shouting their instructions and reports just minutes before. Julio enters silently. He spends a moment taking in the chaos, letting his eyes and ears move over the room, establishing what needs to be done. Then his gaze falls gracefully on the now dead patient whose name he does not know. He approaches, leans over respectfully as if bowing to the person's nobility and whispers softly in the ear, you have died, it's okay now. I will do my best to wash away all dust and confusion. Once Julio has straightened up the room, closed the crash cart drawers, picked up the bloodstained gauze and mopped the floor, he washes his hands. Then he begins to bathe the patient. A recently hired nursing supervisor sticks her head in the door. We need the room as soon as possible, she barks. Julio pays her no mind. Others on the staff at the hospital know of and respect his work. They will protect this sacred moment. Julio takes the time he needs to honor the dead. Place of rest in the middle of things. Looking closely at what may seem like endings, maybe it's more accurate to say transformation. Everything changes, and everything changes everything else. So this is a powerful illustration of the fact that what we do matters. What we do ripples out endlessly. Things may seem to take on a different life. It may seem like there are these discrete compartments with these clear endings and beginnings, but it's really just a blur of continuous, relentless change. We can observe this transformational capacity inherent in the elements, in nature, Someone asked in the Zoom group yesterday about how to actually work with making amends to or offering forgiveness to someone who's already died. How do you actually do that? And it can be a letter. It can be a conversation that you imagine having with the person. It could be making something like a bundle of herbs or a string of beads and taking your writing, bringing a kind of ceremony to some process, you can offer it to the elements to transform it with fire, burying it in the earth, setting a lantern on the water. Someone shared that they wrote what they needed to say to someone on a balloon and let it go into the air. We are also made of these elements and seeing how we are just participating in the dance. Nothing personal at all can help us get ready.
Aging helps us get ready, like it or not. And when we look closely at what we think are endings, the lines blur. So I'd like to share a favorite Mary Oliver poem. It's a lesser known one than wild geese, but it too is about a kind of bird, an ocean bird called a gannet. Gannets are known to be voracious eaters of fish, and they can dive at speeds of 60 miles an hour so they can get the fish that are really deep in the water that the other birds may not be able to get. Gannets. I'm watching the white gannets blaze down into the water with the power of blunt spears and a stunning accuracy. Even though the sea is riled and boiling and gray with fog and the fish are nowhere to be seen, they fall, they explode into the water like white gloves, then they vanish, then they climb out again from the cliff of the wave like white flowers. And still I think that nothing in this world moves but as a positive power. Even the fish finning down into the current or collapsing in the red purse of the beak are only interrupted from their own pursuit of whatever it is that fills their bellies. And I say, life is real and pain is real, but death is an imposter. And if I could be what once I was, like the wolf or the bear, standing on the cold shore, I would still see it, how the fish simply escape this time, or how they slide down into a black fire for a moment, then rise from the water, inseparable from the gannet's wings. Death is an imposter. What does that mean? What could be more real than death? What is more real than our death certificate? What is more real than this temporary combination of earth, water, air, fire, and space? What is more real than what we've accumulated or who we tried to be? in this very busy world. Who is the one who is not busy? This is a koan I'd like to share. And like any good koan, it continues to open up into deeper meaning whenever you work with it, set it down, come back to it. Zen teacher Darlene Cohen wrote a lovely book about it. It's helped me with my chronic case of FOMO, fear of missing out, my tendency for saying yes to a lot of things, also known as greed, or more generously, we could call it exuberance. Here's the koan. One day, Yunyan was sweeping the ground. Dao Wu came up and said, too busy. Yunyan looked up and said, you should know there's one who's not busy. Dao Wu said, 
If so, then there's a second moon. Yunyan held up his broom and asked, which moon is this? These two were students of Zen teacher Yaoshan Weian in the Tang Dynasty. They are sometimes referred to as biological brothers. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't, but they were certainly Dharma brothers. And as such, they had what seems like a friendly sibling rivalry in this koan. Yunyan is the younger brother and I myself am also a younger sibling. So this dynamic of getting picked on or called out by an older brother is pretty familiar. Dawu just walks by him. You can kind of see him just sweeping, minding his own business. Dawu says, too busy. <laughs> <laughs> and they're both deep Zen practitioners. So that's just really like bumping his shoulder on the way over or something. When you get busy, what happens? Does your focus narrow? Are you concerned more with getting a job done, getting to the finish line, and not being present with every sweep of the broom? That's what Dawu is pointing out. Are you somewhere else? So Yunyan tries to meet the challenge. Hey, there's one who is not busy. Right, this true self. But this answer implies that there is one who is and one who is not too busy. That's a dualistic world. So leave it to an older sibling to challenge you and kind of force you to get clearer. If so, then there's a second moon. Dawu is saying the second moon is some fictional other place that is not busy some restful place we want to go that is not here. Maybe it's a better place, a better relationship, a better car, a better job. Maybe it's a ginormous cruise ship. Maybe if I get all my work done, I'll be able to kick back and not be so busy. Maybe there is a second moon. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's like being one of those donkeys hitched to a cart with a carrot hanging down in front of your face. Our American culture has been flavored by the Protestant work ethic. This idea that hard work will be rewarded in the future. That our human value lies in our productivity. That idle hands are the devil's work. And it may take us a while to really wear ourselves out, looking for some place or some state that we can hold on to until we realize, no, this is it. Oh yeah, this is it, just this. And then we forget again and we fall into achievement, competition, comparison, shoring up our identity, busy. Yunyan knows this too. It's one thing to touch an experience, to have some insight into how things are, and it's a whole other thing to express it. Words fail. 
every time. Like the koan Fuho shared yesterday, the man up a tree holding on by his teeth. What do you do? How do you express the truth? So Yunyan holds up his broom. Which moon is this? It's all just right here now. Who's separating the world now, big brother? Would Yunyan have clarified his understanding to this point without the cajoling of his brother? So often it's the challenges we face that force us to clarify our understanding. Maybe a teacher plays that role. Maybe a painful situation. Maybe a koan. Maybe our death. We can easily fall into the trap of achievement, of goal orientation, in order to mind. I'm sitting meditation in order to become enlightened. I'm cooking dinner in order to eat dinner. In doing this, we lose what's right here, what's flowing in front of us and flowing intimately within us. We can also fall into the trap of trying to excise the experiences we don't like. Cut the moon in two and remove the dark side. This brings us back to welcoming everything, which certainly bears repeating. I just want to share a little bit about a living bodhisattva named Father Gregory Boyle. He's a shining example of this. He was the priest assigned to the poorest parish of L.A. County some 30 years ago, in which there were eight warring gangs. And he founded Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang member rehabilitation in the world now. And they had to create work opportunities because nobody would hire these guys with tattoos, lack of education or skills training, untold histories of trauma and deprivation, and not to mention the felonies on their records. In an interview, he said he's buried over 250 people in his decades of work in this area. He shared a story about one guy, Moreno, who had the experience of his brother dying in his arms after a drive-by shooting. The guys who shot him drove back around to see if they both were dead, and Moreno had to pretend he was dead. After this, and he came to Father Boyle and talking about it, he said, death is a punk. How is this different from Mary Oliver's insight, death is an imposter? Father Boyle likens this to the line in the Bible, death, where is your sting? Or about Jesus, death could not hold him. A few years later, Moreno too was shot and killed, and Father Boyle shared Moreno's words at his funeral. Death is a punk. 
and the importance of putting death in its place. For him, this means that we decide what are the things that are more powerful than death. And for Father Boyle, he said that this is loving. Not fixing, not helping, but meeting and receiving a person. He calls it cherishing. This is seeing the perfection, the undivided perfection. This is what Chagda Tulku, the Rinpoche who offered the refuges to Jarvis masters on death row, this is what he was pointing to when he said, you may not see it, but you are fortunate to be in a place where you can know humanity's suffering and learn to see the perfection of all beings and yourself. Learn to see their perfection. And if we don't, what will continue after our death? What is your life about? And like Fuho said yesterday, if you don't have an answer to that question, it is worth discovering that. What are your vows? My Zumi Roshi, my Dharma grandfather, said it is our vows that continue after death. When our practice is endless, how can we be busy? Find a place of rest in the middle of things. Where else would we find it? Where else can we possibly be? Thank you.